Welcome to Nipe Story. This fortnightly podcast brings you audio versions of short story fiction from Kenya and across our African continent. I'm your host, Kevin Machiro. And on this episode, we welcome back Sitawa Namwalie and her story, Black Paint. Mudungu, shut up! The counselor shut down the one voice of reason, Mudungu. His real name is Louis Njoroge. Louis Njoroge sits in the boardroom with his legs crossed. The nails on his long fingers are tipped yellow from non-stop smoking. The counselors heap more insults on him and responds by sitting inert, waiting for the storm to end. Louis' eyes move from the open window to his mobile phone. White smoke from his cigarette curls up and disappears. The other windows in the room are shut tight against the cold spell, which has hit the city, refusing to leave, even though it is the end of August. Louis Njeroge chain smokes to mask the odor in the mayor's boardroom, permanently soiled by the stink of unwashed bodies and breathing mouths. He will not look at his fellow councillors. Instead, he scans a room that is full of cheap MDF board furniture and counterfeit leather supplied by a Chinese company favoured by the mayor for its lack of scruples. In his well-fitting suit, Louis was not the only one who looks out of place in the mayor's boardroom. Milka, the mayor's personal assistant, sits at the mayor's right, trying to take the minutes of the meeting. The mayor calls her Jaber, the beautiful one. She's one of those rarities, a light-skinned lure with the looks to qualify as a trophy wife for a rich man anywhere in Kenya. The sleek hair snaking down her back is all her own, although some spiteful women claim it is one of those weaves that cost 80,000 shillings. Louis' gaze runs to Councillor Moura, whose fat stomach looks ready to break out of his ill-fitting plaid suit. He and Councillor Afula egg each other on competing to see who can throw the most insults at Louis. Why hasn't this guy resigned? Why don't you leave? Just go, Mjinga! Stop producing the same story. Atifuata sharia. Sharia kitugani. Umjinga na non dunguda. You, you, yes, yes, you, yes, you, you can afford to fuata sharia, yes? You can afford. Tajiri wewe, look at a rich man, telling us about fuata sharia. Mwara spits out the word tajiri, turning it into an insult. His saliva splatters and stains the air. Councilor Tieno joins the two and attempts to mimic Mudungu's St. Mary's accent. Fort, Forta, 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 my father owns half of Nairobi. And you will tell us it is because of hard work. Kansamina joins in. Mr. Mudungu, I wonder, wasn't your grandfather a mayor? Grandfather, mind you, not father. Where? When our grandfathers were still sucking their thumbs, <laughs> this one, this one's grandfather was grabbing, grabbing. Yes, Grabiosis. His Excellency Mayor Alan Joroge. Ali tuangamiza sisi wote. Sindio. Amina turns and stares pointedly at Louis. Laughter bounces around the mayor's boardroom and escapes through the open window. 
Louis avoids Amina's eyes, shrugs her shoulder, and manages to drain her agitation with indifference. Milka ignores the laughter and addresses the mayor. Your Excellency, guidance please. What should I record? The mayor too is at a loss. Jaber, even I don't know. Too much could foolish hair. Milka shrugs her shoulders and returns to staring out of the window. The mayor sits at the head of the conference table in ceremonial robes. A gold chain weighs down his chest. He's a tall man, with graying temples and the deliberate movements contrived to give him poise. The mayor is cosseted by his two wives, who dot on Japwon, that teacher, branded for the one year spent in teacher training college. He likes to say he was forced to drop out of college because of lack of fees. Just like many Africans, he uses visions of heart-rending poverty to confer honor on his personal failings. The truth is rather different. He failed his exams and was discontinued. Arrayed around the mayor are counselors of every description, each with a blinking mobile phone lying on the table. Except for Mudungu, the mayor, Milka, and one or two others, the counselors can't hide their rough roots. Former Matatu towns? Just a few of them. Some criminal elements? Many. Being a counselor has fallen off the radar of the middle class and is now a profession owned by a cadre of individuals with the street smarts to fight with no scruples when elections come around. The poor majority of the city see themselves in these people who live in a capricious world where nothing is certain but a brutal death for the trusting. These were the men and few women charged with the task of managing the affairs of Nairobi, the largest and most sophisticated metropolis in East and Central Africa. Nirisema tuwaonyeshe nani ni boss. Hako kamusugu, kali niangaria vibaya kama mukoroni. Kanafikiria mimi ni nani, he, he, ni kamuabia. If you were a woman, I would impregnate you. Kakatan red kama nyanya. Councillor Moara has the curious habit of speaking with his whole body. He appears to bounce in his seat, his short frame going up and down in time with the rhythm of his words. The other councillors laugh at the thought of the look on the face of the Mzungu managing director of the petroleum company. Around the table, councillors shout their approval. Nani kama wewe, nani dome, jogom, anywe, hehe. More ribald absurdity follows and is piled onto Mwara's gem. Louis feels strangely let down as he watches Milka laugh along with the other councillors. She turns to the mayor and speaks. Your Excellency, should I include a part about impregnating the Mzungu in the minutes? The mayor beams at Milka. His already deep voice loses an octave. <laughs> Jaber. Code foolish is too much today. Leave that part out, Jaber. Louis makes a last-ditch effort to bring dignity to the council proceedings. Maura, you must be joking. You clearly don't know what you've done. Louis flinches at his misplaced St. Mary's accent, which sounds suddenly weedy in the presence of those robust other ways of speaking English. He stands up to face Maura and becomes aware of the warm, cloying odour of unwashed armpits mocking him 
as he shouts at them. Well, let me tell you, you have insulted the head of the company which contributes the most to the mayor's Christmas tree and other charitable causes. No one pays him attention. The mayor will tell you Mr. Smith is not to be joked with. He single-handedly makes the mayor look good at Christmas with his generous donation of food and clothes for the poor. His company has a scholarship fund for needy children and his links to the powers that be are impeccable. And Maura cuts into Mudungu's speech as usual. Impeccable. Ninini. Kizungu mingi na catwalk. Sasa, huyu nasema nini? Just speak no more English. We can all hear. Labish. <laughs> Louis fumes on. I'm the one who has to go and face Mr. Smith with that appalling little joke of yours in the background. Mora ignores him. He's too busy lapping up the admiration from his fellow counselors. His shirt tails have escaped from his trousers, as usual, creating a picture of untidiness he has worn since childhood. It was in that meeting that Louis began to understand the futility of his efforts. His mind turned to his wife, Rose, who had grown tired of his constant complaining about the counselors and their shortcomings. She wanted him to move on and find another job. She remembered the point at which she quit his fight. Again, he heard a voice as he drove home that night. Baby, you tried your best. God knows, but you can't be that one good man in a sea of idiocy. Life doesn't work that way. And then she had lowered her voice to a whisper, as if she was telling him a secret. Baby, you can't keep atoning for your grandfather's sins. That was his life. You must live yours. Louis drove his old Volvo on roads too threadbare to last much longer. As he drove home that night, he saw the city with the eyes of a stranger. The headlights pierced the pitch blackness, revealing mounds of garbage lining the streets. The burnt-out frames of broken-down vehicles left to rot on the side of the road. And now and then, he caught the whiff of an animal carcass, putrefying somewhere in the darkness. Ten years, and this is all I have to show for it. The smell of defeat made him raise his windows to keep out the smell of fermenting garbage. It had been a particularly difficult meeting, one in which new levels of the absurd had been reached. The scenes from the council meeting came back to him along with the loud abuse thrown at him by his fellow councillors. He raised his voice this time, shouted back, his back stiff with resistance. No, the council would not hire a private company to collect garbage. He threw sheaves of paper onto the table. Names of those behind the private companies awarded tenders by the council. Five of them, councillors. He pointed fingers. Mwaura, of course. Otieno, Kinoti, Amina, Wafula. You, you surprise me. Maybe you've all forgotten. We just bought a hundred garbage collection trucks. They cost the taxpayer a pretty penny. And only Wafula was surprised. Kati, are you surprised? Kwani mimi sina tumbo? They sneered at him, unafraid. In that meeting, the mayor sat silent looking magnanimous like a great Solomon. Louis was the only one who knew this to be the silence of a snake. Once again, the mayor was breaking promises of support made to him in his private chambers. Louis sighed and bowed his head. 
Louis drove into the ornate wrought iron gates of his home. Despite himself, he felt his spirits lift as the watchman opened the gate. He loved this old house. It had belonged to his grandparents and carried his best memories of them. He drove down the long driveway, crunching the gravel, past the jacaranda trees which grew in purple profusion, reminding him it was October and that the year was almost gone. The old stone house emerged from the darkness and Louis drove into the garage and parked his battered Volvo next to his wife's silver RAV4. Louis sat and closed his eyes for a moment. He breathed in the heavy scent of the jasmine, which clung to the garage wall and felt his shoulders loosen as the day washed away. He opened the front door and walked into a generous reception hall. This was a house with classic proportions, built in the 1930s. The reception hall was where his wife, Rose, displayed family photographs and memorabilia. There were several photographs of Louis with his grandfather, marking the passage of time. As he grew from childhood to manhood, Louis' favorite photograph was of his grandfather in the ceremonial mayoral robes, a floor-length red and black velvet gown trimmed in black and white fur, a heavy waist-length elaborate gold chain, and a ridiculous black hat on his head. It always made him smile. Louis stepped closer and peered at his grandfather's image. He was a tall man, standing with head high, eyes holding the future. For a moment, he remembered a boy's pride in being the mayor's grandson. But the memory was quickly replaced by gloom as recollections of his father's fall came back. It was the Monday after his 13th birthday when he stepped into a barrage of vespers at school and was followed by eyes trying to hide. Even Father O'Brien, his maths teacher, was careful with him, avoiding the customary, almost brawling style he used to push all his best students to think beyond the obvious. At first, he thought he had a snot on his face. He opened the lid of his desk and wiped his face with the sleeve of his sweater. But the strange looks did not stop. At break time, the mystery intensified. Jeroge, so your grandfather's a mega thief, eh? The declaration came from a posse of sniggering fourth-form boys standing together at the entrance of the toilets. It was clear they had been waiting for him. Louis didn't know what to make of this assertion and kept walking. But the word thief, thief, thief chalked the air in school. By the end of the day, it was clear there was something very wrong when Stephen, the driver, offered him just a week, Zaza, and then withdrew into silence. When he got home, after the 30-minute drive, he found both his mom and dad waiting for him in the sitting room in a somber mood. Even 20 years later, his heart still hammered as he remembered the front page of the newspaper and the enlarged image of his grandfather looking old and defeated, below a headline screaming in black, bold letters, Land Thief Mayor Resigns. That evening, Louis kept the promise he had made to his wife not to bring the council into his home. He sat with his family, listening to the reports of their day. His son, Junior, regaled him with the victory of his football match. Shiro, his daughter, begged him to come to school to watch a piano recital the following week. The children talked him into reading them a bedtime story, and for a few hours that day, he escaped. Rose was in bed, 
reading when he walked into the bedroom with Mara's name falling out of his mouth before he could stop himself. Louis, this is the limit. You've brought that man into our bedroom one time too many. I don't want to hear that man's name. Look at you, look at you. Do you know how you sound? Maura, Maura. That's all you talk about. You even dream about the scoundrel. A few nights ago, you were mumbling his name in your sleep. Enough is enough. I want you out of the council. It's been ten years. You can't make a difference in that den of degraded buffoonery. His wife lay hidden under duvet. Only her head and neck were visible as she peered at him over the top of her reading glasses. She still held the book she had been reading. Louis looked at her and sighed in despair. He sat down on the bed and released a whiff of soothing lavender perfume. He knew his wife was right. He wanted to leave, start something new. But how? He had dedicated ten years to what he now acknowledged had been pointless. What was even worse, Louis had lost the esteem of his friends and family who aghast with him in the first place when he announced he had taken up a job with the Nairobi City Council. He remembered how his father had spoken through his teeth, a thing he only did when he was especially incensed. People like us don't join the city council. And you, you have an MBA from Princeton University for heaven's sake. I didn't spend all that money on your education for you to come back now and throw your life away like this. Come on, you can join any top-notch company. Coca-Cola, IBM, Unilever, that's where you belong. Convenient amnesia erased the family's legacy at the council. The very legacy which had created the wealth which allowed Louis' father to pay for that expensive education at Princeton that the senior Mr. Njeroge loved to brag about. No scholarships, nothing like that. We Njeroges pay our way. Louis looked around the vast bedroom, taking in the oak-beamed ceiling the bay windows, the brass chandeliers, and the dark wooden furniture, and sighed again. He remembered the insults hurled at him by Councillor Amina. Yes, he was a Tajiri. His grandfather had made sure of that. The mayor sat with a slightly pained expression on his face. Unlike Louis, he had accepted that it was futile to make any comment. It would only prolong the nonsense. Instead, he wrapped himself in a shroud of dignity and waited the full minute for the laughter to subside. Banging his gavel on the table, he eventually brought calm and began to speak. Milka took notes with her left hand, moving smoothly across the blank page and filling it with incomprehensible shorthand strokes. We are gathered here to discuss a most grave matter. He spoke, enunciating every word in an accent which defied categorization. Just when you were sure he was speaking the Queen's English, the mayor veered off centre, exposing what sounded like lower roots. Even then, there was the giveaway Karyobangi accent with its slow vowels and incongruent hard consonants. The mayor valiantly followed his accent, reining it in and falling over and over throughout the four-hour meeting. At no time did he abandon the quest to speak the Queen's English. The more times he fell off the pedestal, the more times he climbed back on, ready to try again. 
His labors had created a consistent accent like no other. Gentlemen, we are here to discuss weighty matters. Let us be serious. I call the meeting to order. Wafura, tell us again, what may be the problem? The mayor addressed Councillor Fuller, conferring his benevolence from a great height. Wafula coughed to clear his throat, and all heads turned to him. <coughs> you know, in the last council meeting, we agreed to raise the rates for outside advertising by 500%. Well, we did it, and we informed the companies of the new rates when they came to renew their licenses. Some of them complained as usual, but we didn't expect any problems. They always complain, but they always pay up. Don't they? Wafula asked no one in particular. This time, they refused. All of them. They wrote back through their leader. I have the letter here. I want to table it in this meeting. I will read it. It is, it is very short. Yes, Wafula, go ahead. Let us hear the, the missive from Mr. Smith. And let ja, um, Milka have the letter when you are through, Councillor. The mayor addressed Milka with a soft cotton voice again. You will file it, won't you, Jaber? Councillor Amina, a large Muslim woman covered from head to toe in a black hijab, did not miss the giveaway exchange between the mayor and Milka. In a low voice, she started singing the nonsense song she used to bait Milka. Mama Milka, Milka, Mama Milka. Milka, Milka Bonyo, Milka, Milka Sirisi, Sirisi, Simple and Terre, Terre, Mama Milka, Milka, Milka Bonyo, Bonyo. Milka's poise flew away, and Louis watched as she turned to the mayor, pleading with her eyes for him to rescue her from Amina's taunting before some of the other councillors joined in their mischief. The mayor cleared his throat and gave Amina a stern look and shut her up. Mofula cleared his throat, looked around the table to make sure he had the attention of his fellow councillors and started reading. Your Worship the Mayor, I hope this finds you well. Further to our conversation with you, Mr. Maura, I would like to confirm that 20 companies listed in this letter will not pay the increased rates for outside advertising as stipulated in the Council's communication of 19th August 2000. We are appalled at the unilateral useless decision to raise the rates yet again, and this time by 500%. We note with concern this is the second time the council has seen fit to raise the rates over the last 12 months. On behalf of my colleagues, we'd like to register our protests in the strongest terms possible. Our appeals to the council have fallen on deaf ears. We regret this action we have taken, but we feel we have been left with no other option. The 20 companies listed below have instructed me to inform you that we have referred the matter to our lawyers for further legal action. Faithfully, yours, Mr. John Smith, Managing Director, X Company. Wafula finished reading and looked up, joining the uproar as the gathered councils became a mob out to lynch all imaginary enemies before them. The odors in the room intensified and Louis lit a cigarette, waving it around to dispel the stench with little success. Hey, 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 who do these Muzungus think they are? They are not going to pay. There is nothing like that. This is our country, engineer, too. Tutafanya tunacho taka kufanya. Na sasa hivi turicho amua tufanya ni kuwaongezea hao matajiri viwango vya ada. 
Moira took the baton seamlessly. He was also frothing at the mouth and barely able to contain his agitation. Hey, 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 watajua, 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 watatuona. Tupake raginyousi. Louis' voice brought calmly English back. Excuse me, Mr. Moira. You've lost me. Paint what? Black. The mayor speaks loudly in English, his voice raised above the noise in the room. Mr. Mayor, the solution is very simple. Hiyo masainz bodzao zote tupake ragi nyeusi. Reo, today, today, wataongea wa shoke. The mayor leans towards Louis and spoke with certainty. They've gone to court, Mudungu. I, I mean, Louis. When a matter is in court, our hands are tied. We can't even talk about it. There will be a court injunction, and I'm sure the lawyers will move quickly to block us. We won't be able to collect the old rates until the case is finished. And you know our courts. Six months is the shortest time the case is likely to take. But we have bad luck. It could be two years or, or, or five. Mara shrugged. But if we have already painted the signs, what else can the courts do? Louis turned from face to face and could see the mayor and councillors listening to Maura, contemplating this ridiculous idea. He almost choked on his cigarette. Um, Mr. Mayor, with all due respect, you can't take Maura's suggestion seriously. It's, it's a joke, right, Maura? It's, it's meant as a joke? He looked to his nemesis for assurance and watched the assembled councillors' faces brighten, one after the other, as the idea took hold of them. But, but it's against the law. It's against the law to interfere in a case before the courts. We risk being charged with contempt of court. Mr. Mayor, you will be directly implicated. It's your neck on the line. He hoped the directness of the consequences would bring the mayor back from the brink of the latest lunacy. No, I don't think that's true, Louis. All the time pursuing the law, I have never seen a law saying painting billboards black is against the law. And anyway, what can they do? The work will have been done. I suggest we keep painting them until those buggers get tired. What a shocker too! Mara shouted in support of the mayor. Even Milka looked impressed and gave the mayor a smile and a thumbs up. And you know, Mr. Mudungu, um, the courts are no problem. Otieno, the councillor on Louis' right, whispers conspiratorially. Think about your grandfather. His losing streak in the council cannot be compared, isn't it? Aki, Yaguka, hey, even me, I fear him. That's how I got all his wealth, by losing on Pabos. Yes? Louis leant away from his tormentor attempting to escape the words and the pungent smell of sweat. Stop sewing off. How many cases have you won all these years, eh? I tell you, if you can't remember, that's how many. But not like your grandfather, are you? The old Mzenjiroga was honest. He went after what he wanted, unlike his pretender grandson. Otieno watched with a smile of satisfied malice at Louis' growing discomfort. Louis had to agree. He remembered how his grandfather went after what he wanted and got it until he lost everything 
The long-forgotten rumors whispered about the house he had inherited from his grandfather came back to him as he listened to Otieno, that it had belonged to an old white man. Ah, uh, Mr. Adams. Louis had been able to forget that name, try as he might. He recalled the snippets of conversations that helped him piece together his grandfather's less than honorable past. That his grandfather had walked in one day with hired goons, simply taken over the house and many others, a restitution for old colonial crimes. The hypocrisy of someone who had been a home guard and was one of those who joined the ranks of defenders of the colonial order, claiming restitution for colonial crimes did not escape Louis. The old man, Mr. Adams, whose home had been taken away, had immigrated to Australia with nothing. That he had... No. It was no use remembering. Louis' mind came back to the room and he became conscious of the fidgeting, discomfort filling the room. He knew that one by one, the councillors had begun to realise what not being able to collect the rates from the billboards would mean for each one of them. Louis watched Councillor Otieno take his phone out of his shirt pocket and watch as he typed a message under the table. Otieno curled his lip at him when he realised that Louis was watching him. Then he shouted, I support Mr. Mwaura's idea. It can work. Yes, yes. It is a great idea. I volunteer myself to even paint those signboards. Before Louis' eyes, the mayor became transformed and became a general marshalling his troops. Gentlemen, and uh, a few ladies, we have a negotiated agreement then. Very well. Very, very well. You, Mara, will lead the painting. It must happen at night. Tonight. Start at midnight. Start with the petroleum companies. Begin with Mudaiga and then Lavington and uh, Westlands. Don't forget Karen. That's where they, they live. The bosses must wake up and find boards right outside the house painted black. They must know we are not joking. We need um, 10 teams. There are lots of signboards to paint. I will sign the requisition for the fire engines. The pickups and other vehicles are no problem. The planning continued with military precision. As the meeting ended, Louis was in his habitual pose with his head in his hands. The next day, Louis Giroge sat grinding his teeth in the mayor's boardroom. Of course, he was alone, facing the forest of microphones, flashing cameras and journalists. A black folder with a council statement on the blackened billboards lay open on the table in front of him. Smoke from his sixth cigarette choked the room. He was breaking his one cardinal rule. Never be caught smoking on television. Louis sniffed. <laughs> the emboldened stench in the room was like the rage building up within him. He clenched his jaw in a vain attempt to control his anger. As usual, he was the one who had to face the incredulous contempt of all the journalists as he struggled to explain the latest council outrage. He took another long drag of his cigarette. He looked up into the eyes of the smirking BBC journalist and tensed in anticipation. Mr. Njoroge, can you confirm the rumours 
did the mayor himself give instructions for the city's billboards to be painted black? Black Paint was written by Sitawa Namwalie. This is a second contribution to the podcast, with Dead Rats being her earlier offering. Sitawa Namwalie is an award-winning Kenyan poet, playwright, and performer. Cut Off My Tongue was her first production and has toured Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, and the UK. Her growing body of work includes articles, short stories, dramatized poetry, productions, and several plays. Nippy's story is available to download wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, please tell your networks about Nippy's story. You can follow us here on SoundCloud, on Facebook, we are Nippy's story. And on Twitter, our handle is Nippy underscore story. And we welcome African short story fiction of between 750 and 4,500 words. Please email us on nippestorypodcast at gmail.com. That address once again is nippestorypodcast at gmail.com. Nipe Story is proud to be part of the newly established Africa Podcast Fund initiative that is run by Spotify. Nipe Story is a finger piano production. <laughs>